Love watching the relay race in the Olympics. Part of it's because it's a team sport. It's not just up to one person. So all of them have to run well. But it, the race isn't won or lost often in your speed, but it's in the exchange. It's in the exchange in that little window of time. Uh, and there's a box there. It's a little bit longer than the stage here. The key is in that space, you've got just a few moments to make a legal exchange and to make it well um, to be able to finish the race. And parenting is just like that. You've got just a little window of time to make the exchange and to make the pass. And the fact of the matter is most parents are failing to make the pass. They don't make the pass well. And if they do, it is the grace of God that their kids even think about the things of Christ or the things of God because we just don't, we have totally abandoned any biblical concept and understanding of how faith is passed from one generation to the next. And we are, we are dealing with the same effects that the generation after Joshua that inhabited the promised land of, uh, experienced when, they, uh, when we find the beginning of the book of Judges, one generation after Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going we're to do things different. We're going to make sure that when we go into this new land that we pass the baton to our kids. And the problem is the next generation that followed them grew up without an understanding of the one true God that had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, had led them for 40 years in the wilderness, wanderings under judgment, but then provided the promised land for them, uh, wells that they didn't dig and cisterns that they didn't dig and houses that they didn't build and vineyards that they didn't plant. All of this stuff, abundant um, blessings were provided for them by God. And they did not, they did not remember the Lord that gave it to them. And so in Judges, it begins with there was a generation that knew not God, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the world we're living in today. You say, well, it's not really that bad. Oh, it's that bad. Uh, this is 10 years ago, at least. George Barna did a, um, a study and uh, wrote a book called The Revolution. And in this, he gives some statistics. Only 9% of all born-again adults, that's not just people that check Christian box, but born-again, that's, that's a little more specific people that are born again. So that's an upper echelon of, of believer, people that would profess to be believers. Only 9% of professing, we might add, born-again adults have a biblical worldview, meaning that less than one out of every 10 Christians age 18 or older <clears throat> believe that absolute moral truth exists, believes that such truth is contained in the Bible, possesses a handful of core beliefs that reflect such truth. The beliefs include a, certainty, include a certainty that the Bible is accurate in the teachings that Jesus lived a sinless life on earth, that Satan is real, not just symbolic, that all believers are responsible for sharing their faith in Christ with others. The only means of salvation is through God's grace and God is the all-knowing and all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules it today. The other 91% of born-again adults possess a patchwork of theological views and rarely rely upon them, those perspectives, to inform their daily decisions. He goes on. Although the typical believer contends that the Bible is accurate 
in what it teaches, he or she spends less time reading the Bible in a year than watching television, listening to music, reading other books, publications, uh, conversing about personal hobbies, leisure interests. When asked what constitutes success in life, few believers define success in spiritual terms. Most describe outcomes related to professional achievements, family solidarity, solidarity, physical accomplishments, or resource acquisitions. They're getting stuff, acquiring stuff. And, so for, and, and, and if we were to ask what's successful parenting to your average born-again Christian, they would say the same thing. They would, they would refer to, well, raising your kids, you know, to, be, um, to, to achieve some things professionally, to be, make, be good, get good jobs and be able to provide for themselves and be good citizens and, and um, you know, get all the stuff they need and whatever. When given the opportunity to state how they want to be known by others, fewer than one out of ten believers mention descriptions that reflect their relationship with God. What's going on? What's happening? What, we're, we're failing to raise our kids. And there are a whole bunch of other shocking statistics in this book that are very convicting. But what, what do we do? How do we change the course? We've got to do some things different as a church. And so the theme we're talking about is is launching arrows. We're told in the Psalms that children, children are arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. They're like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. We have a completely different view of parenting because we want to shelter, protect, isolate, um, you know, our, our kids. We want to cocoon them. We want to, uh, you know, helicopter mom them all the way in and through college and life and and parents are just wow it's it's a completely different world here uh in the way we do parenting but it's it's a defensive posture and we we want to understand that biblically we're to raise kids with an offensive posture all right and so what can we do in the 18 years we have in the 936 weeks we have in our kids life to raise them with the foundation the roots and the understanding of god that that they have the best possible soil in their life for them to grow up with a rightful understanding of God, with a biblical view of reality, so that they will follow Christ first and foremost, and that they will spend their eternity, that their souls will be saved by Jesus Christ, and they will go to heaven when they die because they have been their, their sins have been justified in Christ. They've been forgiven in Christ. They've been paid for in Christ, and they will live eternity with God in heaven. And they will not spend eternity, their soul, in hell under the judgment of God because they rejected the truth about God. That's, that's goal number one. Goal number two is that we would give them the foundation they need to bring many others to faith in Christ and to make an impact on the world. And I don't mean an impact as in that they are accomplished and they have their name on a book or a reference or on, you know, they get a bunch of followers on YouTube because of their cute little videos or their whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that they point many people to Christ, that they live a life that exalts and lifts up Jesus, that Jesus becomes bigger and they become smaller. And the end of their life, people go, man, Jesus was big in their life. Jesus uh, was such a passion for them, and they represented and lived and fought and surrendered their lives to the glory of Christ. And they passed that to the next generation who's passing that to the next generation. That's the win. And so we got to understand, when they hit 18, the goal is not to you know, continue to babysit them for the rest of their life. The goal is to launch them out. Not cut them off, launch them out, that they would make a great impact on uh, the world and live their lives for the glory of Christ at whatever days God 
gives them. Deuteronomy is the framework for this. And that, so here's the key. This is verse 4 begins what's called as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They, they literally they took this literally, and they put the word of God literally on their wrists and on their foreheads, so it was before them. And I don't know that that was necessarily bad, but it certainly wasn't the point of what God was saying. What God was trying to say is you've got to make it the center point of your home. And sometimes visual representations like that are good. Sometimes it's a good thing to draw back. But just because you have a big box on your head or your foreheads doesn't mean you're hiding it in your heart. And that was the problem with the uh, Jewish people in the Old Testament. Is they were great about the forms but, and, and the functions, but they weren't good about the heart. And so he was tell him, you've you got to make this a part of your, the center of your, your, your lives. And, and here's how he explains that further. Verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns, that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the houses or the house of slavery. It is the Lord, your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve by his name. You shall swear. You shall not go after other little g gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of this testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, when we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and, and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that, we might, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statues and to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The key verse in this is verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son. And he goes back and talks about how they were delivered from Egypt. I don't know if you've ever been asked that question by your kids. I would imagine it probably didn't come in this form. But I would imagine you've been asked that question depending on the age of your kids. 
Why do we go to church? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we pray before we eat? Why do we pray at night? Why do we talk about Scripture? Why do we make decisions with our time and we choose to put spiritual things as the priority as opposed to worldly things? Uh, your, your children are observing your life, and there's a lot more that's caught than is taught. And so you can teach certain things, but if you're not emulating and modeling and they're not a part of your life, your kids can see the difference. And so they might not even ask, why do we do these spiritual things? Maybe they, they, are just, they already have a message that Jesus is a, such a critical, vital part of Sunday mornings. But that's it. And when they grow up, they got the message. They got the message that he's important. That we, we try to make it a priority to, you know, we, we are faithfully there at least once a month on Sunday morning. And, um, and we, you know, we get our, you know, hour and a half or two hours in and then we're good. And then, uh, you know, but we pray occasionally and, and we do celebrate Christmas and we do this, we do that. And it's just nominal Christianity isn't going to get it done. Now, don't be, don't be mistaken. I'm not saying that if you aren't in church every Sunday, then you are a godly person. That's not the point is not church attendance. The point isn't your kids graduating, you know, getting all their marbles out and, and every marble goes in the I attended church that week jar. And so now that they are 18 and they've gone to church every week of their whole life up until 18, now they're good. And that, that in and of itself isn't going it's to, that, that's not the win, that's not what I'm saying. But the priorities of our life, is Jesus woven into the fabric of our life? Is the word of God critical and a part of us? And can you, mom and dad, articulate to them your deliverance story? Can you share with your children? I was in bondage of sin. And God saved me and he transformed my life. Your grandfather was in this situation, that situation, and God saved him. And his grandfather, his grandfather, 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 none of them knew God, walked with God. And yet in, the, in God's grace, in the midst of all that, he saved your grandfather, your grandmother, your aunt, or whatever. And, and then they pointed us to Christ or saved this person and, and then he shared Jesus with me. And, and when I came to an awareness of my need for Christ uh, and I surrendered my life to Christ uh, and I became born again, I became a new person. Suddenly I had a hunger for the word of God and, and I knew my life has to be different because Jesus had, had saved me when nothing else would. And I found that Jesus is the only, I have run after all kinds of other functional saviors and I have found in my life that none of them satisfy. Only Christ can satisfy. He is the representation of God on earth. He, he is God with flesh. The glory of God is, is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. He is worth it. He has saved me. He is transforming me. He is the hope of our family. And all the other stuff you see around you is passing away. It is not reality. Christ is reality. Eternity is reality. Souls are reality. That's reality. And we are being deceived and we are being challenged and we are being fed a bunch of lies every day by the media, by the world, by the education system, by whatever, telling us it's different. And I'm telling you, when you go back to the word of God, if you test those other beliefs, you're going to find that they're empty and they're going to hit a wall because their truth is not truth. It's lies. And you're going to come to the awareness that Christ is the only hope for you. And that's my prayer for you. That's why we read scripture as a family. That's why I've raised you in the things of God. That's why Jesus is important in our life. That's why we do these things, because these are critical for us to grow in an understanding that hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Lord our God is one. We need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit, because he's the only one worthy. And when we run after other gods, we diminish his value's worth. He's a jealous God. He won't share our love 
with other gods because they're dead and he's alive. He has provided deliverance. They don't provide anything. And so he's not going to let us deceive ourselves into thinking that, that they can give us hope and peace and life and meaning and worth and value. Christ is our hope alone. That's the goal. That's the answer to the question. Can you articulate that, mom and dad? Are you raising your parent, your kids with that end in mind? And, and for everybody, it, we, all of us have to come to this point. First Peter, it's explained this way, just says that you would be able to explain the hope that's within you. When somebody comes to you, believer, as, uh, you know, hey, you, you, you seem to live your life different. Things are different. And they ask you, what's the deal with you? Why are you different you don't get mad when other people get mad. You're, you're kind when people are mean to you. You do that. You're, you're, you're sacrificial. You're, you're loving. You're con- What's the deal? With you? I don't understand it. Jesus, the deal. Can you, can you explain that? The next couple moments, I, I want to cover some things with you that hopefully help us continue to build on this. Um, you know, it doesn't take long before uh, you bring a little sweet baby home from the hospital, and they're just sweet, precious. So they don't sleep at night. They cry and they get upset, and and then they, they you know and then they're they're they start eating real food, and they're you know their little cute diapers are now not cute anymore, you know. And you have to invest in a hazmat suit and um, you know air freshener or fans or whatever, and it's really bad. And that sweet little bundle of joy uh, begins to exert a desire to dominate the world as the center of the universe. Okay, and um, as, as uh, I think Vody Bacham said it this way, that you know it's a little, it's a viper in a diaper. So that's what that's what little babies are, and they're sweet, but they 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 want the world to function the way they want the world to function, and they begin to exert their will and their desire to control and to manipulate. And uh, as parents, we have some that that that's the beginning of the fight right there. That's the beginning of the fight. Now, now they're questioning authority. And so it's really critical, even from that stage, that we begin to develop in them an understanding of authority. Because you, mom and dad, are under authority. God is your authority. And you need to obey God. And if you do not establish that you're the authority in the home as entrusted by God as a gift to your children, who are likewise a gift towards you, if you don't establish to them an understanding of authority, you're being disobedient to your heavenly Father. And there's some problems there. And so there's some things we we need to think about as we we go into this. And so I want to talk about some today, very specifically in these moments, about how what do we do with arrows that are crooked? Because all of us are born as crooked arrows. So how do you straighten a crooked arrow? arrow. And the answer ultimately is, okay, spoiler alert, the gospel. Jesus is the only way to straighten the arrow. You can't straighten the arrow through behavior modification and other earthly attempts. It's not going to do it. Behavior modification is dangerous as it sets up a pharisaical life of works righteousness when you teach your kids, you do these things, I'm going I'm I'm to discipline you. You do these things, I'm going to reward you. And you, you play a game. And, and there's a point for that. And we're gonna, I'm going to try to help you see how those can be useful and they're necessary, but to keep them in their right place. But when, it, when it's all about just trying to get the desired effect in your kids and just trying to get them to not embarrass you in public and to, to do the right thing when you ask them to and to appear to be a moral, responsible child, at least when we're around other people, 
and, and you're just you're, you're putting out the fires of the most urgent things, but you're never dealing with the heart. What you're doing is you're creating little Pharisees. You're creating little hypocrites that are going to grow up thinking that they are little moral, um, self-righteous little things that aren't as bad as all these other people. And they are, you know, they're, they're, they're good and they don't really have a need for Jesus. I mean, Jesus is cool. And then maybe they'll pray a little prayer at some point so they can check the box. I'm going to heaven. But they have no reliance in Jesus really for their true salvation and their hope and the ability to straighten their crooked life. And so the goal in parenting overall is to help our kids examine themselves across the standard of the Word of God and the standard of an understanding of authority and the standard of the truth of the Word of God so that they can see where they're bent and they have a need for the gospel. Okay, now you don't do that by ignoring their behavior and just going, well, you know, they're just, they're lost. So they're just, they just don't know Jesus. And so they're just going to, they yeah, throw fits because they don't know Christ. And they're cute. But one day, they get older, we'll talk about it. No, you will ruin them. And they will grow up either unbridled as uh, following their passions, manipulating and doing whatever they want to control the universe, or the flip side of that, the other extreme, is they become legalists, thinking that they can establish their own righteousness by their own efforts and feeling really good because mom and dad are proud of me because I always behave, because I'm the good kid, because I'm the, I'm the, I don't get in trouble like my other brothers and sisters or those other kids. And, and again, that's not the win. Behavior modification, again, teaching them to be good, righteous, will not save them. Their hearts must be changed for them to be restored to God and delivered from the state of separation. And here's some of the ways we try to do that behavior modification. One of them is the bribery approach. Do your work all week, and I'll take you to a ball game. Or, you know, if you will stop complaining or whatever, then we'll go get ice cream. Or if you stop throwing a fit, then then we'll go do this. That's bribery. You're going to pay them off. If they do this, then they'll get... That's not, it's not good. The emotional approach. Please do your homework. Please do, please obey. I get so upset when you don't. It makes me feel like crying. Mommy wants to cry. Daddy wants to cry. I wonder where I went wrong. I mean, what's the problem? Why do you do that? that, that that's not healthy. That's manipulative. That is not healthy. Uh, the punitive approach. You didn't do your work, so no TV for the week. You fail again tomorrow, there will be no TV for two weeks. You fail again the next, I will throw the TV. And that, that's the punitive approach. Again, it's not that there aren't consequences for decisions, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Behavior modification approach. For every day you do your work, I'll put a slip of paper in a jar with your name on it. And then when you put enough papers in, we'll go do whatever. And you, the behavior modification, it's the, the, the mouse and the cheese and the maze. You know, if you, when you go through the maze correctly, you get the cheese. Okay, when you do these things, then I'm gonna I'm going to elicit from you the um, the correct response. And and let me let me just clarify something. It that works. Behavior modification works. It does, but it works because it was it's created on animalistic. It works for animals, and that's where they discovered that approach. And it does work. And the danger for us and dads, if I can speak to you for a moment, the danger for us is we're busy and we don't have a lot of time to just sit down and have this big dialogue about whatever. We just want the kids to obey. And so dads, we're the worst at, and moms, you know, you have the problem too sometimes, uh, at looking for the, the path of least resistance. And so whatever can get the response we want, we go the quickest route. And I'm just telling you, you're not going to end up with straight arrows that way. You're going to end up with self-righteous kids, or you're going to end up by not really dealing with the real issue, which is the heart. 
And so how do we get to the heart? That's some of the examples you can utilize that aren't healthy. And there's a bazillion more, but how do we do it? Two things, formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline, what is that? Formative and corrective discipline. If you're looking for a change of behavior and understanding, it's not an event, but it's a process of learning to live, rely on, you might say, the gospel. That's the goal. Formative and corrective discipline. Now understand, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And by the way, by saying the man, it's for everyone, okay? All scripture is useful and helpful. Now, there's a part with parents, we're afraid to use the word of God. Now, one of the reasons is because we don't know the word of God. And the other reason is because we're afraid if we use the word of God on our kids in an unhealthy way, they're going to grow up to not like Jesus because the word was always used. Parents always quote a Bible verse and they always did it. And again, it can be used wrongly. First Timothy chapter one says the law is wonderful if used lawfully. But a lot of times people use the law as a stick to beat their kids into submission. And that's not the point. The, the law is used to put a standard to help our kids see where they crossed over outside the boundaries that God has established for them to live in the world that he has created and how their life will not be good as they're outside of those boundaries. And so they need to submit to the authorities he's placed in their life, repent of their actions. There will be punishment and consequences for that. And they need to understand that God has prescribed consequences behaviors all through the word of god there's sins that are mentioned there's consequences that are mentioned it is part of the rhythm of life and so using the word of god effectively is critical in formative discipline and so formative discipline specifically what's the goal of that well formative discipline begins out of an understanding that our child's greatest need is a heart change is regeneration they are dead to god and they need new life in their heart And so that is critical for them if they're going to grow in the things of Christ. Corrective discipline assumes that God is faithful and will fulfill all that he has promised. And so you trust that discipline is a good thing. If you look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, you're taking notes, just write this down, I will read it for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It's interesting, he's actually using parental family language. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, do not, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's assumed that every father is going to discipline their son. And every mom is going to discipline her kid. If you are left without discipline, and I'm still reading the scriptures, verse 8. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. You know, they established authority in our lives. And though we, we didn't appreciate it, we did respect them. And so in the same way, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment of all discipline, this is the verse many of you know, verse 11, 5, 11. 
The moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Ephesians chapter 6, parents, raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Literally, the nurture is discipline and admonition of the Lord. You've got to discipline your kids. You have to discipline your kids. You have to discipline your kids. You have to do it. How do we do it? Well, formative and then uh, corrective. And so some of the formative, there's a um, gentleman that wrote in the Journal of Evangelical Theology Society, Paul Wagner, he wrote an article on Proverbs, looking at Proverbs, pulling out some parental insights from Proverbs. Um, Here's some insights on corrective discipline. Actually, the first four are going to cover formative discipline, and the last several will give us some insights into corrective. And so here's what they are. First of all, encourage proper behavior. First thing you do in is as parents is encourage proper behavior so if you flip to proverbs again you can write these references down but i'll just read some of them to give you a sampling of the wisdom in in the book of proverbs proverbs chapter 3 verse 13 blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the grain of from her, I'm sorry, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all of her paths are peace. She is like the tree of life to those who have laid hold of her. Those who hold fast are called blessed. So, hey, encourage proper behavior. Encourage wisdom. It's really good. Chapter five, 4, verse 7 through 8. The beginning of wisdom is, is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will ex- honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And he even goes on. Verse 10. There's tons of stuff here. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the, ear, the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will, be, will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not be stumbled. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. From, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They, have robbed, uh, they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of the wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Man, it just gets better and better. So encourage proper behavior, number one. Uh, number two, inform... Uh, improper behavior. Again, he says, not only does he speak of the way of righteousness, but he talks about the wicked. And here's what happens when you go the path of the wicked. Again, tons of Proverbs on that. There's some noted for you here so you can see those. And and then number three, explain the negative consequences of sin. Again, verse uh, chapter one, verse 18. He says, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its 
possessors. What he's saying is, if you go that path, all you're going to do is destroy your own life. That's what's going to happen. So you, you, you go in a path of disobedience and pride and arrogance, and, and it's going to destroy you. Not the people you're trying to hurt or the people that you do hurt. I mean, it will hurt them, but it's going to, in the end, it will destroy you and your life. You need to understand the consequences. Again, God was so abundantly clear about this. The whole book of Deuteronomy begins with, you know, the, the reminder of the law, and then it ends with him saying, okay, let me just, let me, let me simplify this one more time for you. I set before you two options. Life and death. Obey my commands, life. Disobey my commands, death. Any questions? <laughs> it was abundantly clear. It's so clear. But you can't discipline your children if they don't know what they've done that's wrong. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating as a child growing up in an environment when you don't know if you're doing right or you're doing wrong or you're doing what. You've got to be clear about what your expectations are. So encourage proper behavior. Inform proper behavior. Explain the negative consequences of sin. Gently exhort. So this is all formative, formative uh, discipline. This is where you're forming. You're not, they're not in trouble. This is ongoing dialogue and encouragement and nurturing. You're laying down tracks for them to run on. You're, th- how do you do this on a regular basis? Well, you're talking. We talked last week about two things you can do to be like Deuteronomy, where you're, you're, uh, as you go through the day, as you lie down at night, as you wake up in the morning, as you walk down the path, whatever. Throughout your day, we want to be doing two things. One, intentional faith talks, intentionally talking about the things of God. That's formative discipline. And number two, you want to be doing, uh, you want to have some God sightings. And so whenever you see God work, whenever you see him provide, whenever you see him moving in your life, in your family, in your child's life, if he's some, maybe your child was really wanted to get on this team or this club or this group and, and it didn't work out. And then in the end, you see that it was really God's protection on them, that that was a dangerous thing. Pause everything and pause right there and go, ah, God. The creator of the universe who spoke the world into existence has jumped into your life and has protected you in this situation. We prayed for his wisdom. Mom and dad, we're praying for you that you would grow up in the things of God, that God would protect you from, from this or that or whatever. And here we see he has moved and his footprints are on. We see he has protected you. Let's praise him for that. Let's thank him for that. Helping them see the activity of God in everyday life are the God sightings. And so those two things as a rhythm of your life, intentional faith talks and God sightings are going to help you with formative discipline. And then as you dialogue and talk through the word of God, read Proverbs together. Read the Psalms together. Read the word of God with your family. You've got to do that. Don't just, the little bit we do on Sundays is not enough. You've got to do this through the week. And so that, that's all of that. And then corrective discipline gets into the next Three, gently rebuke and reprove. Apply corporal punishment that doesn't cause physical harm. This is a little thing that, I, so I don't know if you heard of it, it's called spanking your children. Okay? It doesn't cause harm. The goal of spanking is not to bruise or to break a bone or femur or um, you know, to, to draw blood. Obviously, you, you, you don't, you're not trying to hurt the child, but you do want to teach them that there's consequences and the most clear, decisive way to do that is to be there in the moment when they disobey and to deal with it in that moment. And if you'll do that when they're young, you won't have to spank them when they get old. 
Okay, you do that when they're young, you're going to be cha- teaching authority, and, and I'm going to give you a couple quick principles that will help you with that. But then the, the level seven is apply corporal punishment that causes physical harm. Are you serious? Yeah, I am. Um, this is in the Old Testament um, throughout. And in fact, the, there's an eighth one, and that is death. And that's in the Old Testament too. Now, we in our society, for various reasons, um, and I'm not saying this is bad, but God has given us governments, and governments have certain responsibilities. He's ordained the authorities that rule over us, and we're to submit to those authorities. And so level seven and level eight in our society are entrusted to uh, the government, ultimately. We have legal systems, and we have law enforcement and different things. And so if you really have an unruly child that's really getting bad, there's a point where they're going to do things that they, they might get arrested. They might have to physically be placed in jail. They might physically be harmed because of their decisions that they're making. And that's part of God's discipline and plan in their lives. And so it's not that parents don't do that. You, you, you're not, that's not your role now. That's the role of the government, okay? You'll go to jail if you try to do that. Don't do that. But I just want you to understand that there is an escalation in disobedience where consequences get worse and worse. And, and eventually uh, it will lead to death in an in a, in a unruly young person's life that continues on a path against God. And so, so that being said, how, how do you do this? Well, be clear and be consistent. Clear, consistent, the most important things that you need to know about disciplining your children. When we were talking about specifically corrective discipline, they disobey, you deal with the action, you deal with the hard issue, you do it decisively. Be clear about what the expectations are. When they break them, deal with it, but then be consistent. So how do we do that? Well, here's three thoughts. And again, this is, uh, Ted Tripp gives these three. This is his expectation on his children. When I ask you to do something, you do it without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. Without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. You, just, you do it. And the younger that you instill this in your children, the better, but you've got to be consistent about that. And you're saying, man, I, I, there's no way my kids will not. I mean, we've all seen it, and our kids have probably all done it. You tell them to do something, and then they, well, I want to do that. Well, I'm going to do this. And they just keep doing what they want. They just keep, and they ignore it. They act like they didn't hear it. They act like, you, you can't do that. You've got to deal with it decisively because they have to know you are the God-given authority in their life. And so you've got to teach them. One of the phrases we've used in our family, we kind of heard from somebody, it's been helpful for us, is, is we obey um, first time uh, with a happy heart. Obey first time with a happy heart. In other words, the heart is, is uh, without challenge. We're not challenging it. We're submitting ourselves willfully surrendering our rights and knowing that we're just trusting you, mom and dad, that what you're telling us to do, we need to do it. And so we're, we're submitting that. Rather than the kid who says, okay, the parent makes him sit down there. Well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up in the inside. You heard that story. This, that's the heart is the key. And so that, that's another thing. Uh, Ted Tripp said, if you accept challenge, delay, and excuses, you are not training in submission. You are rather training your child, your children home uh, how to manipulate authorities and live in the ragged edge of disobedience. You're training your children how to manipulate authorities and live in the ragged edge uh, of disobedience. And that's cute as a three-year-old. It's not cute as a 23-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 13-year-old. It doesn't get cute. And you've got to do it when they're younger. So start young. So, well, how early do you start disciplining them? As early as they start disobeying. As early as they... I, we, we, have, uh, we have disciplined our children when they're eating, when they got to the point where they where they take their, you know, their food and they grab the spoon from you, you're feeding them, and then they throw it down. 
when we take their little hand, we pop their hand. We didn't take them. We didn't beat them. We didn't shake them upside down. We didn't, we just, and you don't go, you know, that's really cute. I'm going to wait till my husband gets home and I'm going to tell him what he did. It's really fun. No, no. Right then you walk over and you grab their hand. And you see, you don't drop your food. We don't do that. And then they'll, they're going to test you again. And that, that might happen five times. Might have to, depending on the temperament of your child, it could, it could be a long journey. But I'm telling you, you've got to get on top of that. There's a great blog um, resource out there called, um, I think if you search Raising Godly Tomatoes, and the principle is staking godly tomatoes. And, and again, I want you to understand, I'm going to qualify this. The goal of this is to lead them to the gospel, and I'm going to explain that in more detail next week. The goal isn't behavior modification. But if you're not giving formative discipline, which clearly instructs the expectations about how we're supposed to live, and you're not applying corrective discipline when they disobey to show them the consequences of their decisions, then they won't be prepared to receive and understand the gospel as they continuously realize that they can't live up to God's expectations. They're going to fail like mom and dad failed. And so they need Jesus to save them, change their heart, and make them a different person to straighten out their life so that they can be who God wants them to be. And so to do that... To do that, you're going to have to deal with it early. And so I've got some tomatoes we planted uh, in, our, in our garden. And, I, you know, this, it's a self-explanatory here. But if you, if you know tomatoes, most of them, um, we, we have the little metal things around them. But I ran out of metal things, and I didn't get enough. And so um, I've got some that weren't staked. And the staked ones have grown really tall. And they're starting to, you know, they've got the green. But we haven't got any ripe ones yet, but they're getting there. Uh, and the ones that aren't st- uh, staked are really big now, but they're laying down. And they're, um, they're growing and they're all over the ground and the tomatoes aren't healthy and the plant's not healthy and, they're, and it's, it's unruly. And, and so uh, several times um, through my gardening experience, which is very limited and not tremendously successful, um, I have tried to go back after the fact and, and taken those tomato plants and pull them together and try to somehow stuff them back through the wire or tie them up. And what inevitably always happens is things break off. And there comes a point where it, the plant just grows too much and it's kind of got an established whatever and it just does, it, you just can't get it back where it needs to be to have maximum fruitfulness, right? And so parenting, um, corrective discipline in a right way, it, the mentality, the framework you should think in terms of is how do I stake the tomatoes early? How do I stake them early so that as they grow, they're growing in a pattern. I'm dealing with the issues and I'm able to help them so they'll have, ma- have maximum fruitfulness. And so she gives some really great little practical tips and parents asking about different things. And so in light of leading them to the gospel, that can be a helpful resource in giving you some more details um, that you can uh, understand how to do this. And so uh, last thing I want to leave you with is how-tos of spanking. We all want to know how to legally, rightfully, ethically, graciously, lovingly, biblically beat our children, right? Um, and I mean that in the most affectionate way. But you need to do that. And, and uh, <laughs> Some of you, you might, up until, I think, 92, there was a publication um, in a, with uh, pediatricians advocating for uh, corporal punishment for spanking of children. And, uh, but from that point on, this has been under war. And so most of, many of you in this room undoubtedly are offended that this is even on the screen in a house of God where people are supposed to love God and love the word and that you would talk about beating your children. Who do you think that you are, that you would beat a beautiful little creature of God that is, just, uh, you know, and you don't, this is offensive to you. And uh, all I can say is, uh, you know, if we don't spank them, we don't love them. God's word makes it really, really clear that we have to use 
Spanking is part of the process. Don't use it more than you need to. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it, but um, it drives, the rod, according to Proverbs, drives folly out of the heart of a child. And there is a bunch of verses on spanking throughout the Bible, and you just can't get away from it. Nonetheless, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I just read to you, implies it. So how do you do it rightfully? Well, take them to a quiet place whenever possible. Number two, tell them specifically what they have done and why it's wrong. Preferably biblically, because if it's not biblical, then why are you disciplining for it in the first place? Okay, Uh, and let me add to that. You don't discipline, and you certainly don't spank. You, you, You discipline, but you don't spank a child for childishness. Okay, a lot of times kids do stuff just being childish. They don't mean to do something. Uh, they, 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 or they just, they're just being careless. And you don't discipline them for that. One of my kids uh, the other day was uh, one of the little girls taking a bath and they, and they were, had a water sprayer thing and sprayed out of the tub. Uh, you know, that wasn't a moment for me to, um, to sit her down and to spank her because she disobeyed because she knows that the water is supposed to stay in the tub and not outside of the tub. That's where it goes. And so I, I'm not going to spank her for that. But I did, I did confront her with that. that hey, what, here's what you're doing. You can't do that. We've told you many times. You've got to be more careful. Here's what you need. So I, we dealt with the childishness, but that's not a spanking thing. So make sure it's, it's wrong biblically and that you can, you can explain that to them. Secure an acknowledgement of what the child has done wrong. Make sure that they understand what they did and what they, the, the violation that they made. You understand that what you did that was wrong? Number four, remind them that the spanking is not the venting of frustration and, and anger. Now, if you've done the first three, you're probably, number four is likely true. If you skip the first three, number four probably won't be true. And we've all done it. Maybe you haven't, but I have. There's times that we spank and we discipline in anger, frustration, and it's just, and it's, it's, it's not good. And when you do that, you better apologize and say, Mom and Dad, what you did was wrong, but what I did there, I shouldn't have responded in anger, and I was wrong for that. Will you forgive me? And you model for them the need for Jesus and grace in the same way that you're trying to raise them to believe. And so remind them the spanking um, is not for venting anger or frustration, but you're doing it out of love. Tell them how many swats to expect. Okay, we've explained to you that when you do such and such, that there's going to be three spankings. Or I told you this, and you didn't do it, and then you did this this time, and then you didn't, and so now there's going to be three, or there's going to be four, there's going to be 20, or whatever it is. Um, Whatever the expectation that you come with, deal with that. And then after spanking, affirm your love and your commitment for the child. This is the most critical, vital part, particularly in the younger ages, but even as they grow up. Affirming your love for them. And, and, And I'll tell you this, this is one of the sweetest times in parenting are these moments when there's reconciliation and you will have a glimpse into the heart of God like you will never see any other time in the parenting process. This is how it goes often. Child disobeys, you pull them aside and you spank them and you deal with the discipline of what they did that was wrong. So you sit them down and you say, okay, here's what you did that's wrong. Um, do, do you understand why you're going to get the spanking? Yes, I understand why I'm going to get the spanking. Okay, and then you... You discipline them, and then after, you have a conversation. Sometimes you can do this before, but often it's after. And and here's kind of something that we've done in our home um, often is we remind them, who who am I? Your dad. Does daddy love you or does daddy not love you? (laughs) Daddy loves me. Do do I want good for you or do I want bad for you? No, you want good for me. You want good. Right, I want good for you. And, and, And God's word has told us there's some things we need to do, and that he's told me that I need to teach you right from wrong. And when you disobey, I can't let you off the hook because, because God expects me to discipline you 
And if I don't do, I'm disobeying God. And I'm going to get in trouble with him. And so, so, you know, you need to obey. Okay, okay. All right, I want you to know that you are loved. You're loved. Thank you for apologizing. Thank you for, for telling me what you did that was wrong. And I want you to know you're loved. I, I we don't spank you because we don't love. We love you and whatever. And those are sometimes the most sweet, the sweetest moments of restoration as the gospel is expressed and experienced in your home when there's restoration. There's a consequence for sin, and then there's restoration. And ultimately, one day, you're going to be able to have the conversation as they get older that, that Jesus took our spankings, our discipline upon the cross for our sin. The Father had to bring judgment because His children, humanity, had rebelled against Him and there was the need for somebody to absorb the wrath and, and the consequences of those actions. They had to be dealt with. God had to discipline the world. And he was going to discipline us by, we were going to have to die and be separated from him forever. But Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life, and always obeyed the Father. And then he took our spanking on the cross. All of us need God's help in this process. And so every kid is different. And what works with one won't work for the next one or whatever. But those train tracks of formative and corrective discipline are critical. Dealing at a younger age with, uh, you know, with spanking and, and establishing authority in an appropriate, right, God-honoring way in the earliest years is critical and vital. So that if you do that right in the earliest years, you're not going to have a problem as they get older. It, it, you're you're going to be able to just give them the look and they're going to get it and then things are better. And you can talk through it, whatever. But you've got to do that right. But But... You've you got to figure out, okay, with each kid, be sensitive to God's spirit. What is he teaching you, and how do you do this? And one, one, there was a time where one of my, um, my children, but uh, he was disobeying, and it was an ongoing thing, and, and a good friend pulled Janet and I aside, and we were like, we're just so frustrated because we feel like we just keep disciplined for the same thing with, with several of our kids, and we're just like, you know, how do you not just give up? And he's like, man, sometimes it's boot camp in our house. Sometimes we just, we just have to do boot camp. And we just, we go to war. My wife and I, we talk, we pray, and we're just like, we're going to deal with it. Their their little prideful, manipulative spirit is going to get broken, and they're going to learn to submit to the authorities that God has placed in their life. And so we're not giving up. One of us is going to die here in this situation, but we are not yielding, and we're going down fighting. And so, and you just, and it was one of those moments in our home. And so we begin to deal with the issues and the discipline. But then there was a point where you can only spank so many times. And it was just like, you know, spanking wasn't getting, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't fixing the problem. It wasn't dealing with the problem. And so finally it had been enough spankings. And I, and I told to the child, um, you know, okay, we're going to do something different. And, he, you know, he was upset and frustrated himself. He keeps messing up. And, it was, and I said, you know, daddy is choosing right now to take your punishment. What do you mean? I, I'm going to take your punishment today. Today, I'm going to take your punishment. What do you mean? No, you're, I'm, what you did is wrong, and, uh, but I, I'm, just, I'm not going to spank you again. I, but, but somebody needs to get spanked. Somebody's going to get punished, and I'm going to choose to place myself in that, and I'm going to take your punishment. And so I, I made him take the spanking spoon and spank me. And he was like, you know, you think that he'd be like, you know, and, but he didn't. He was timid. I mean, it softened his heart. No, no, no. You, no. you, you were wrong, and what you deserved... What you deserve is a hard spanking, and you, maybe three or whatever it was. And, and so it needs to be consistent with what I, you would get and what you deserve. That's what you have to give me. And, you, and so um, they, that, that's what they did. And it was some pretty good pops, you know. It was pop, you know, pop, pop, you know. 
what's interesting about it is there's no glory in that. The child did not delight in that. And the response to that was, um, was Dad, what can I do around the house to help? Can I serve? I'm going to go clean the kitchen. I'm going to go clean the floors. I'm going to go vacuum. I'm going to do whatever. And, I, and, I, and it was a, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But our kids will never know the kindness of God if they do not know the authority that God is and how critical it is that they obey. And their eternal soul is in the balance. And if we can get to the heart, and we can deal with the heart, we can lead them to Christ. If we can lead them to Christ, then that's where their heart's really going to change because the discipline of winning the moment wasn't the goal for us, but for our kids to understand and comprehend the gospel. But when you understand the gracious love of God and the sacrificial love of Christ that has been poured out upon us on the cross, it releases in us a desire to live for the glory of God. What can I do? Father, you have saved me. What can I do to serve you? Who can I share about your goodness? Who can I go proclaim what you've done for me? You have satisfied me and you have saved me and you've opened my eyes to the world I didn't even know existed. What can I do? And the natural response of saved, born-again people is to want to live their lives for the glory of God because the wrath that they they deserve has been absorbed in Christ. And so the goal of Christian parenting is to lay tracks of formative discipline and to reinforce it with corrective discipline so kids understand the consequences for their decisions and their actions that one day they will come to an awareness of there is a bigger consequence that you deserve and I deserve, and that is death in hell. And you know how hard it is for you to obey, and I know how hard it is for me to obey, and my only hope has been Christ, and your only hope is Christ. And now you've created an environment where a child can be led to a point where they understand their need for Christ. And that's the win. 